0: welcome to the True Man Podcast with Mike Van Pelt, the Comeback Coach, helping you gain peace, clarity, and understanding in your walk with God as a man, a father, and a spouse. Hey, get involved with the show. Send your email to Mike at trumanlifecoaching.com. If you're wondering what's gone adrift in my masculine soul and asking, is there more to life? This is where it begins. This is The True Man Podcast. So I get the opportunity to uh, meet a lot of people and connect with folks both online and in person. And oftentimes the result is I get to hear an incredible human interest story and I love that. So, you know, it's it's usually something along the lines of a comeback story or pivot point somebody's life that, you know, caused them to make a change. And so I think, I think we found one of those people today. I feel pretty confident. So welcome to the show, Kevin Parker. Kevin is CEO and transformational success coach at True Warrior Success. Kevin specializes in recovery coaching and empowerment life coaching. Kevin travels the country and the world, helping men and women personally and professionally find their true warrior within and overcome obstacles of any size. And you can check out his new book, Winning Against All Odds on Amazon. Kevin, welcome to the True Man podcast.
1: Well, thank you so much, Mike. It's an absolute pleasure to be on the show. Uh, When I met you, it was an instant connection, and I'm really, really excited to be here.
0: Yeah. In fact, we, uh, uh, I'm on a a weekly. Uh, we we loosely call it a networking group, although it's not. It's kind of a connection group where we get together on a weekly basis called the Global Chamber Cooperative, which you can find at globalchambercooperative.com, strangely enough, right? See how that works. And um, so Kevin was on and he told this story the other day. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of one of those things where it really knocked, you know, my socks off uh, because it's, it's, um, well, it's incredible, and that's all I'm going to say. And I'm just going to let Kevin jump in here. At, you know, really tell us about your comeback story because it's it's really amazing.
1: Well, thank you very much, Mike. I absolutely love to do that. Uh, for me to tell that story, I have to kind of take it back from the beginning. Sure, uh, because we all have different kinds of traumas and obstacles and events in our lives that shape our behavior and our our future. Yep. Uh, Early, early as a two year old kid, my mother and father broke up and I I moved in with my stepfather. Uh, He had two sons. Unfortunately, the youngest one, who was my age, got attacked by a wolf uh, at two years old. Terrible, terrible tragedy. Nobody should ever have to go through. Uh, Completely mutilated his face, ripped off his scalp, and even took one of his ears. And as a little boy, he didn't understand what this was about. So when me and my mother moved into their house,
0: where were you that a wolf? I mean, I know there's wild animals at virtually anywhere, but. <laughs>
1: Well, it wasn't me that got attacked, but we were in Staten Island, New York. Yeah. Uh, the, the mother of his of, of my stepbrother uh, was into exotic animals. And she was oh, a, OK. She was one of those, those kinds. And um, and she had a hybrid wolf and uh, she left it in the backyard. And the, the baby got tangled up into the chain oh, and gosh. it snapped out and started attacking the little boy. Uh, but what happened from this is he became very mean and vicious. And angry and resentful and me being half his size, not having any scars on my face being a i would I wouldn't say a perfect little boy, but a cute little boy uh, that didn't have any kind of meaning going on. yeah, I was the enemy. He hated my guts uh, and later on in life he even admitted it. But he never missed an opportunity to physically, mentally, and emotionally abuse me. And for a long time, I actually thought he was evil, maybe even the devil. Uh, it was just a horrible, horrible experience. I didn't understand about trauma as a young kid. I just felt like the whole world was against me, that I wasn't loved. I didn't feel comfortable in my own skin. I didn't belong where I was. And at a really young age, I was suicidal. Uh, I remember as early as five years old, I remember telling my father that I wanted to kill myself. Had five? Really? Yeah, uh, wow. I, I, I really, I really, really didn't like life. And, uh, and you know, they, they kind of brushed it off. But in my little five-year-old mind, I was dead yeah. serious because that's all I knew. I just, you know, people go through way worse tragedies than that. But at five years old, that's pretty devastating to be uh, to be abused in that kind of way by somebody that lives in your house. So when I finally got old enough to get on my own in some kind of capacity, I was introduced to marijuana and alcohol at about 9, 10 years old, and it became my cushion. See, it became a solution to a problem that in result became a way bigger problem in the end. Uh, I started smoking and drinking every single day by high school. I did just about every drug you could possibly think of. Uh, I played baseball and football growing up, so I couldn't work. So I started selling drugs just to get by. And I was really in this lifestyle. I had unlimited amount of drugs, unlimited amount of friends, because everybody wants to know the drug dealer at that age. Um, it wasn't real friendships. So I didn't know that they really yeah. didn't care about me, but I, I got, I got caught up in this lifestyle and 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 it, and it consumed me from the inside out. Did you know? Yeah. Really-
0: did you know to have any awareness that what was going on or you just completely caught up?
1: Yeah. I didn't even think, I didn't even know what addiction was really. Uh, I didn't, I didn't think I was going to get addicted. I thought I was having a good time. I thought I was masking (laughs) my pain Yeah, that uh, I was finally being accepted for who I was because I was bullied because of my insecurities and uh, low self-esteem from all of all the abuse that I had as a young kid. And I didn't know that I could just be myself, that people would love me for who I am. So it became my identity to be a drug dealer It became my identity to be the the highest person at the party. It'd be be my identity to be the, the, the jokester and all that stuff. And, and me selling them and doing them, I had unlimited amount of supply. I was surrounded by people that were constantly doing it. So it just became a lifestyle. I mean, I would just meet up with people and it'd be like, hey, you want to smoke or you want to drink? That was that was the way that we would meet up. It was that was the only way that we did it. It was never, hey, you want to go hang out? It was no, You want to smoke? Do you want to drink? You want to do some other stuff? Uh, and it just became a lifestyle. And when I first got into high school, I was an honor student. I was an all-star baseball player, football player, I had the world in the palm. How? Of my hand. <laughs> Yeah. I I had a lot of natural talent. I was a really intelligent kid, uh, but I was just going down the wrong path. Yeah. But by the time, by the time I got out of high school, I got out of high school by the skin of my teeth. And the only reason I did is because I was on the baseball and football team. They kind of pushed me through the classes.
0: That sounds vaguely familiar.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I watched all my best friends go to the schools of their dreams. They went to colleges, they they traveled, they they dormed, and I stayed home in my hometown, Staten Island, and I was really resentful because of this. So I got a little heavier into the, the drug scene, obviously. And at 18 years old, uh, going to meet my brother, I got into a head-on collision with a bus. Mm. I injured my neck and my back, and this is when I was introduced to painkillers, and I got severely addicted to painkillers. The doctor started me at a low dosage. Before I knew it, I was taking thirties, 30 milligram oxycordone six times a day prescribed. And when that wasn't enough, I was doctor shopping. I mean, I was just getting an absurd amount of painkillers for not that bad of an injury. Um, before I knew it, I looked around and every single piece of my life was missing all my friends were gone every girlfriend i ever had broke up with me every job that i ever had i lost uh and i ended up homeless i looked around at 25 years old i was just a shell of who i used to be i was a full-blown junkie Uh, i had nowhere to go my father took me in he let me stay for about six months until he said kevin either get help or get out Mm -hmm. he tried to do some unprofessional intervention which i don't agree with Uh, it's not like what you see in the, in the, in the, on the TVs, you actually have to get a professional, Yeah, um, which is why eventually I became a professional dimensionist. So that that doesn't happen, but um, yeah, he just kind of pushed me out and I said, "The hell with this, I'm leaving. I packed all my stuff in a little book bag. I took my safe. I put it on my shoulder and I stormed out the house. Like I was showing him. I walked about a half a mile in the freezing cold in New York city uh, with a tank top and shorts freezing with tears, running down my face. I must've looked like a crazy person who just stole a safe. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It was a really rare scene. So I get to my best friend's house, who was also an addict. And I convinced his mother that my father hated me. I had nowhere to go. He didn't love me. And she said, Kevin, you could stay here as long as you like. That Mm -hmm. night, she cooked me a bowl of macaroni and cheese. And it should have been the last meal of my life because everybody else woke up except for me. They found me face first in my vomit, blue, completely unresponsive. The next thing that they knew, the next thing that I knew yeah. was I was waking up in the ICU three weeks later. I found out that in that coma, I died three times. It got so bad on the third time they had a priest come in and read me my last rites. When I first woke up, nothing short of a miracle the first thing I seen was my mother's face, and when I did to her. And let me tell you, that was the most guilt and shame I ever felt in my whole entire mm-hmm. life. seeing your mother, seeing your mother crying over you for three weeks, not knowing if you're going to live or die. She looked like she aged 10 years since the last time I' seen her. I didn't know what was going on. I looked around the room. I was hooked up to about 10 different machines, tubes coming out of my throat, tubes coming out of my lungs, tubes coming out of my stomach, out of my junk. I was a hundred pounds soaking wet. I couldn't even move my body. I couldn't even tell my mother I was sorry. Uh, I remember the doctor coming in that day and saying to my family and looking at me and saying, it does not look good. He's not going to make it through the night. If he does survive, he's going to be a complete vegetable. He's going to lose all four of his limbs, and he's never going to be the son you once knew. You're going to have to bathe him, feed him, take care of him, and he's going to live in the bed, brain dead for the rest of his life. Mm. This was the best moment that ever happened to me, because it was the first time that I reached out to God. Before this, I was like...
0: What made you do that? I mean, did you have a relationship with Christ prior to
1: that, or... No, actually, uh, my father was Catholic. My mother was Protestant and they never, they never baptized me. They never taught me anything. They just kind of were like on paper religion. And mm-hmm. I was agnostic. I didn't believe in God because I always thought that there was a great cloud that was following me around everywhere. <laughs> sure. And I thought, why would God do this to me? If he really existed, why would he do this to me? Mm-hmm. Like, like I was so special and, um, and I didn't believe in God. Uh, I wasn't necessarily atheist. I just was like, show me, prove to me, you know, and I, and I never really had an experience to, to show me otherwise. But when I was in that coma, I had an experience and I put it in the first chapter of my book of what I actually experienced that showed me that God was real and what, what really changed my mind about that, that knew that, that I knew that I was saved for a reason that, that, that I have a purpose in my life, that I was bought, that there was a reason why I was here. And, uh, and when I first woke up, I had that experience in the coma, and I remember praying to God consciously, like actually, actually aware of it for the first time in my life, begging and pleading for a second chance, because like they say, there's no, there's no atheists in a foxhole. <laughs> you know what I'm I was just told that I was gonna lose all four of my limbs, and be completely brain dead, even if I survived, which I probably wasn't gonna survive. So uh, I was scared to death, and I was like, "God, please! I know you're up there. Please, God, just give me a second chance. I beg you. Just, just I, I'll change. Just, just show me. I promise I'll make a difference in this world. Just give me one more shot. I learned my lesson, and I and I and I remember begging and pleading and and, and just pleading with God every single night because I knew He was real at this point. And I just I wanted to see if He'd hear me. And for weeks, I didn't really get any response. I still stayed alive. I was still conscious in my head. But uh, about two weeks after that, uh, the doctor comes in one day and he says, "Kevin, I got some good news, and I have some bad news." He <laughs> <laughs> said, "Which one do you want?" Yeah, uh, was, I want the good news first because it's been a lot of bad news lately. So, and yeah. I couldn't speak because I had tubes in my throat. But that's what I was yeah. thinking. So I'm like, "Okay." So he says, "The good news is, I think you're going to make it. I think you're out of the woods." I'm like, oh, cool. That's the good news. So the bad news is we're going to have to take your leg. or You're going to die tonight. So this is my constant reminder. I have a, um, I have a prosthetic limb, mm-hmm. a prosthetic leg. That's a constant reminder of all of my mistakes that I've made in my life. But at that moment, every single emotion you could possibly think of ran through my mind, anger, frustration, yeah. resentment, guilt, rage but amongst all of these emotions the one that I had to hold on to the tightest was gratitude being grateful that I was still alive yeah that there was a God that still heard my voice that heard my pleads and uh it took me about four months in that hospital to get over I mean I had so many different complications I was a hundred pounds soaking when I'm now 225 so it was bad news. I had to learn how to breathe again. They had me on a breathing machine for about a month and a half, and they would lower the oxygen just low enough so I'd have to struggle for each and every single breath, but high enough so I wouldn't die. It was like being waterboarded. It was absolute torture. It was the most strenuous, horrible experience of my entire life. Uh, I had to learn how to eat again, drink again breathe again, talk again, walk again, move my hand again. I had to learn how to do everything. It took me four months. And what I learned from this experience is your support system in life is your number one resource, hands down. Because when your back's up against the wall (laughs) and you have no other options, it's your support system that's going to get you through. Now, that can be your family. That could be your friends. That could be God. That could be a cool little networking or connection group that you're in. Yeah, But when you have no other options, it's your support system that's going to get you through. It took me about four months to get out of that hospital. And at that point, I thought that the battle was over. (laughs) Yeah, I I couldn't have been any more worse wrong because the battle just begun. When I left that hospital and I pulled up to my house and realized I had to get up two flights of stairs just to get to my bedroom, (laughs) it might as well have been a mountain. It took me an hour and a half and every ounce of strength that I could muster to get up those stairs. When I got to my bed, I collapsed in pure exhaustion. And this is when it all hit me. I realized that I had no more friends. I had no more career. I was all alone. I was missing a leg. I was blind in one of my eyes. I couldn't move my hand anymore. I was literally half the man I used to be. And once again, I was suicidal, sitting there wallowing in my self-pity. But then I remembered the promise that I meant to God in that hospital when I begged and pleaded for a second chance. Now, although this wasn't the second chance I would have chosen, <laughs> you know, nonetheless, yeah. it was still a second chance. And I had to hold my hand to the bargain. So I went through this whole process, and uh, at the time, I got my stepmother told me to read a book called The Secret. I don't know if anybody's ever read the book The Secret. It's about the Law of Attraction. Uh, yep. It was at the time; it was really, really good for so, me. So that's interesting.
0: You read The Secret maybe before you dug into the Bible, or were you digging into the Bible at?
1: at- oh, that's a good question. So I wasn't even a Christian at this point. Okay, I, 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 it took me about seven years to get saved. Before after, I've, I've been only been saved for about three years now.
0: Even though you're you're reaching you're reaching out to God, there's a piece of you that like sees the the value in it. But before you really dive in, you're you're diving into the secret, which is good stuff. It's yeah. good stuff. I you know this is interesting. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I went. I, we can go into my spiritual. Uh... Journey, but I was very stubborn, and because I was very turned off by the Catholic Church, because when I went there, I felt very, very judged. Uh, I didn't know any of the prayers. I didn't know anything that was going on. I went there, and I thought yeah. it was all about money. You know, I, I just, I just didn't feel comfortable praying to statues. I, I, I thought, I thought the whole Jesus story was a fairy tale. Nobody guided me and showed me the right direction. Nobody opened right. up the Bible and showed me. So uh, that was the last place that I was looking for God. I knew He existed. Um, I, I knew that He saved my life. And I knew that he had a bigger purpose for me, but uh, it was the last place was I going to look was Christianity. Let me tell you,
0: <laughs> yeah. well, so, I, I, I get it. So yeah. this is, yeah.
1: So you, you come across the secret yeah, so I come across and I, I read. I read. It. It's about the law of attraction. Like attracts like. Whatever the mind can conceive and believe, it can achieve. This is a really powerful thought process for me because I was dying in my bed pretty much, and you know I'm missing a leg. I can't move my hand. I'm 100 pounds. My girlfriend just left me. Uh, I have no career. I have no hope. So it gave me a little hope in my life, and I started crossing off all the things that I needed to do. Uh, I needed to get off of drugs. I needed to get. I needed to get myself back healthy again. I needed to do all these different things. Uh, But there was no way that anybody was ever going to put me back in a medical facility for 30 days to get off of the drugs they had me on after being in there for four months. So I had to lock myself in my in my room, cold turkey for a month, uh, getting off of opiates, which I don't know if anybody out there has ever uh, been addicted to opiates. But it's like uh, having the worst flu that you've ever had and every ounce of physical, mental and emotional pain hit you all at once that you should have felt that entire time using uh, the withdrawals for opiates are absolutely brutal, but I did it all on my own, locked in my room, throwing up my brains up and uh, I did it. And it was the first thing I did on my own. And it was a really, really great experience. And I knew the next thing I needed to do was go to my doctor and figure out how long it was going to take me to learn how to walk Mm. So I went to the prosthesis office. I asked the doctor, I said, Doc, what do you think? How long is it going to take me to walk? He looked at me straight in the eyes and said, Kevin, it does not look good for you, man. Uh, you're a hundred pounds right now. You have you, you can't even move your hand. You're you, you have atrophy throughout your whole body. He said, It's probably gonna take you two years to learn how to walk properly. <sighs> two years. When I heard I yeah. he almost cursed the guy out, I was like Don't tell me I've been I've been walking my whole life. Don't tell me two years. Are you crazy? So I stormed out of there in my wheelchair and uh, I came back two weeks later with just a cane. The doctors tried to grab me. I said, don't you touch me. I'm going to do this my way. Tell me two years. No way is going to take me two years. So I come back two weeks after that. I keep completely unassisted walking on my own two feet. The doctor was blown away. From his reaction, I was pretty impressed myself. So <laughs> so this do gave me a look.
0: do you attribute part of that to listening to the material, uh, the the secret and just really pushing uh yourself mentally? Because I mean, obviously the doctor wasn't all that positive. So I I, I mean, that in and of itself could make one just give up.
1: Yes, the power of positive thinking, yeah, and the power of of visualization. Those mm. are all very real things. We have meca- mechanisms. I don't wholeheartedly agree with the secret as of now of the knowledge that I have in my head now, but I do believe in the visualization. I do believe in I do believe in positive thinking. I do believe in all of those different things that will eventually give you the best shot to make the best decisions yep. to get what you want in life. I don't right. think it's that I'm doing it myself. That I'm manifesting stuff out of the sky. and I say I need a million dollars and a million dollars plops in my lap, but it was a good, it was, it was a good start for somebody that was hopeless. Right. Uh, So, yes, I do. I do accredit some of that success to that mindset of being able to visualize myself walking, visualize the positive lifestyle, being able to see what is possible that I can do it. Uh, From this point, I gathered momentum. Now I'm walking after one month. Then he just told me two years. So I gathered my, I gathered my, I started practicing, practicing, practicing. And one month later, I gathered my friends and family and I got a video tape because everybody was asking me how I was doing. And I had them record me running down the block Now picture this. A doctor tells you it's going to take you two years to learn how to walk. I was running in two months. And what I've learned from this is don't ever let anyone ever tell you what you can or cannot do in life. The only obstacles are your mindset and your faith. You could do anything that you put your mind to. And this really gave me momentum in my life because now I can run, but I still have this floppy hand. I had drop wrist. I had atrophy. And the doctors told me straight up, they said, you're never going to move your hand again. There's really, there's no shot. You have absolute 100% nerve damage. I couldn't even feel my hand. I couldn't move it. It was just dead. It was just a floppy wrist. Mm. Uh, And again, I looked at them. I said, you don't know me very well. Don't tell me what I'm going to do. I'll show you. And I stared at my hand for about nine months and I stared at it and I looked at it and I talked to it and I said, come on, move. We've been doing this our whole lives. I'm not going anywhere until you start moving. And one day. My finger wiggled. Mm. Oh, man. When I see my finger wiggle, it was one of the happiest days of my life, man. I see my finger wiggle. I was like, that's all I needed to know. I started getting my finger. I worked on the finger for a week. Then I finally got the other finger to work. Then another finger Then I got my hands and I eventually started getting my wrist. Then I started, started getting my wrist strength back again, working out with soda cans. And before I knew it, I got my hand back. I almost have about 90% usage. I can't do certain things and I have a little bit of numbness in my fingers. But thank the Lord that I have. Have my hand back again.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're obviously if you're listening to this on the podcast, you can't see the video. But if you can see the video, I, I'm like looking at you now and watching you move your hand around. It seems perfectly normal to me. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, like if you were see, like you can see, like this hand. Like, I can't do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know? Well, there you go. Yeah. Right. You know, it's, uh, it's little stupid little things, but they, but it's no, but it's great. But you I would have to that. tell somebody that. Yeah. 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 You'd have to tell, you have. I'd have to tell you, uh, of my limitations, but it, it's, it's amazing. I'm so blessed that it happened. Uh, and it really just put me on this, on this, this path of self-development and self-improvement in all aspects, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. I wanted to prove to myself and others that I am worth it. Yeah, Uh, there is a reason that I'm here. So so you go
0: through this incredible process. And um, I mean, I got to say, so much of it is on your own. It sounds like just trying to overcome. So you go through this process and I guess you get to a certain point and you're like, I want to learn more so that I can help others overcome obstacles in their life is that is that what that looks like
1: yeah i uh I, I i started because i was a construction worker my whole life before this happened and obviously i wasn't about to do construction work with <laughs> a missing leg and a, and, a, and a bum hand so i had to start using my mind so i started really really following around tony robbins yeah. Uh, Les Brown, John Maxwell was a big hit. I read all of their books. I became a self-development junkie instead of just a junkie. And I started reading every book that I can possibly get in my hand. And I've read over 250 self-development books. Um, I went back to college. I wanted to be a doctor at one point uh, because all the doctors that saved my life. And I found out that I'm actually pretty smart. I got straight A's in college. Uh, but I did not want to go back to school and spend 10 years in school. So, so it slowly started to diminish from, I wanted to be a doctor. Then I wanted to be a PA, then an NP, then a nurse. Then I just got my bachelor's degree in psychology (laughs) because, uh, I just, I didn't want to do the whole schooling. And, um, and I also didn't want to work for somebody. I Mm -hmm. want to have a boss because some days I can't put my leg on some days I can run some days I can't walk. Uh, And I don't want to have to worry about if I'm going to lose my job, if I can't get up someday or be on my feet for 12 hours or whatever the case may be. So I had to really customize my life, but I realized that my life is my canvas and I'm the artist. I can literally create any life that I desire. If I just put it together how I want so I started really developing in self development, um, coaching, leadership. Every book that I could possibly read up, and I wanted to figure out a area that I can implement all of these different things. And I was thinking, what do I know? Well, <laughs> I was like, well, I know how to do drugs really well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering how you were going to spin that off.
1: <laughs> I was really good at doing drugs, and I was—I re- became really good at getting off of drugs. Yeah. So I started really starting writing inspirational things on online. Um, and I started hearing a lot of a lot of really sad stories because of the opioid epidemic. Yeah. Uh, so I wrote to the, the Sunday advance in my hometown, my story. And within 30 minutes of me emailing the editor. I got an email back. This is one of the most amazing stories I ever heard. I would love to be able to put this on the front page of the Sunday Advance. So they, I said, sure, no problem. That would be great. And once I did that, I had about like 150,000 people that uh, shared it and and liked it and all that stuff, whatever they do on the internet. I'm not big on that, but it just, it just went, it went viral. And a bunch of organizations started reaching out to me and asked me if I speak at their events so I said, oh, I've never spoken in my life, but I'm in this place of self-development. I was like, why not? You're (laughs) pretty good. Why not? Let me try. Let me try. Let me see. I gave it a shot. And I remember the first time I was at a scared straight event for drugs. Don't do drugs event. Yeah. And I was supposed to be the keynote speaker and I was terrified. I'm sitting up there. I had my glasses on. I had this crumpled up piece of paper. I'm sweating. My glasses are fogging up. I'm <laughs> shaking. I'm like, buh, 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 buh. This little piece of paper in my hand. And I'm like, they call my name up and I'm like, I'm stuttering through the whole entire speech. But you know what? I got through it. And when I got through it, I had a standing ovation from the entire crowd. And it was the biggest high that I'd ever gotten in my entire life. Wow. It was just incredible. People were lining up to, to to hug me, to say hello, to tell me how that inspired them, that they were that they want to stop doing drugs, that they need help. And then from that point on, I really just got into helping people with addiction. I started speaking to kids in high schools and immediate schools. And By the second or third time, I didn't have a piece of paper. I just spoke from the heart. And I started putting together speeches and really, really putting messages together that would really empower and help people that are struggling. Uh, but I also know that I struggled with mental health issues and insecurity issues and self-confidence issues and all of these different issues. So I wanted to become a coach. So I got uh, certified through John Maxwell and Tony Robbins, and, uh, and I started coaching. And coaching was something that r- really, really turned me on because uh, the coaching process is so powerful. Yeah, um, if if you have that aha moment and you change somebody's paradigm and switch their perception, I mean, it could be just life changing because they come up with it in their heads, and it was just so powerful. I mean, I really, really loved it. Uh, so between the speaking and the coaching, uh, I really, really enjoyed it. But then I started learning the 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 business of this type of stuff. And I learned, I had to niche myself and all this Mm. crazy marketing stuff. And uh, which I wasn't too uh, happy about. So I started, I got my intervention uh, intervention certification, my sober companion certification, my recovery coach certification, Uh, every single cert. I have like 12 or 13 different, certifications and different modules of coaching and all kinds of different things around recovery, transformational coaching and empowerment coaching. And I kind of combined all three of them and created true warrior success coaching. It's more of a transformational success coaching where we turn pain into power, whatever that might be. Yeah. Uh, If it's addiction, if it's mental health, it's, it's, it's switching your paradigm and your perception and really creating, turning your biggest weaknesses into your biggest strengths. Because every lesson that we ever had in our lives is a blessing. It makes us bigger, better, stronger, wiser. So as crappy as your life feels is as much ammunition as you have to turn it into a rock star life. And it really is amazing.
0: You know, your story is just phenomenal. I think this is the least amount of talking I've ever done on any podcast because uh, like I, there's no way I can even add to like what you're, you're talking about, but I will say this. And I, and I'm kind of curious your thoughts on it because, um, you know, um, I've experienced, uh, you know, a death in my family due to, uh, 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 drugs addiction, and it's a horrible thing to see a family go through. Um, and, um, th- but this is going on every day in our country. I mean, the amount of drugs, um, you know, n- and opioids and prescription drugs it, it, it's insane and um, it's it's incredibly sad and while you're a successful story there are many families out there as you're well aware that are, I mean they have a family member just absolutely struggling to get off this what advice would you give families that are seeing a family member? go down a dark road that you're, I mean, you're familiar with, how can Um, they help them?
1: Well, the one thing that uh, it's, it's, this is kind of a multi-level, multi-level answer that I'm going to (laughs) give. There's no just one answer. It's very, this is complicated stuff. uh, Very, very complicated. But the one thing that I can really, really tell family members is do not enable the addict. Because behind every addict, there's an even sicker person enabling that person, giving them a comfortable environment to use, giving them money, giving them shelter, giving them love, support, all those things, because the enabler always thinks that they can help fix them. You can't fix an addict. They have to make that decision by themselves. So the two most important things that you need to do is to first get a professional involved because a professional is going to be able to take the, the burden off of your shoulders when you stop enabling them to use. Yeah. When you say enough is enough. This is the boundaries. These are the, these are, these are where you cannot cross. I'm not going to let you walk over me perpetually for the rest of your life, because not only are going to kill yourself, but I'm going to watch you kill yourself. And then I'm going to feel guilty about it. You know, people make decisions from the avoidance of pain and the obtainment of pleasure. When it gets more painful to use than the pain it is to stop, then they'll, then they'll quit. But if you continue to make it easy for them to use, if you continue to love them, support them and be there for them while they use, they'll never stop until they're dead. Mm -hmm. And you can never make that decision for them, but you can shape their behavior by taking away the things they value until their life falls apart and they hit that rock bottom where they say enough is enough because only they can make that decision. You can't force somebody to stop doing drugs. I've seen a million families try to beg and plead and like bribe that their loved ones. I'll give you this. I'll do that. You know, and all they do is they just get manipulated more. Or they get let down. Mm. You need to get a professional involved to set the standards of how things are going to be get done whether that's a family coach, whether that's an interventionist, whether it's a recovery coach, whatever it might be, you need somebody there that has the professionalism because your family member, the, the addict only knows you as dad, only knows you as mom. You're not going to just step up in there and put a professional hat on and they're going to trust your word as gospel. It's never going to happen. For me, I'm, I'm a family coach, a recovery coach, a sober companion, a drug interventionist. I have, uh, 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 and a family member that's on drugs. I'm so close to them. I can't do the intervention on them because they only know me as their family member. You need to get somebody that's out of it. That's not emotionally invested in the situation to take control of the situation. If that makes sense.
0: Well, it, does, it does make sense. Um, you know, I, I, I think when you're, you're close to somebody, um, you know, you want to try to help them just out of, out of love. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's as simple as that just out of love. You want to try to help, but you can't. And we've all heard this, but when you're in the middle of something, it makes it rather difficult. I mean, you can't help somebody that doesn't want to help themselves. And um, in fact, you could probably, as you're saying, you could do more damage and it could be more painful for you in the, in the long run. So that's, that's great advice. Now, here's something that I'm kind of curious. I, I don't like to dive into politics a whole lot. I, I actually, I never do, but, and I, I hate the fact that drugs and uh, this opioid epidemic is, is political in nature, but it is because it is. Um, in your opinion, Being involved um, in some of the things that you've been involved in and seeing this all up close, what can we do as a, and I'm just going to say selfishly, a country to stop this? I mean, it seems maddening to me because to me, what it looks like, and I, I, you know, I'm kind of, it looks like we're enabling this to happen.
1: Well, I don't want to get into, politics and i don't get to conspiracy theories and i don't want to get into all that stuff but the facts of the facts is the government makes money off of us being addicted However you look at it in the 80s, when we were in South America, all of a sudden we had cocaine in the 70s and 60s and 70s. When we were in Vietnam, all of a sudden we have heroin. You know, we were in when we were in to we were in Gulf in the Gulf War. And then all of a sudden opiates came back again. We're in over these seas where they have these drugs and they get um, imported into our countries. And the our our government gets paid one way or another from us being addicted. There's nothing that's going to, there's nothing that gives them the reason to get us off of drugs. There's nothing, there's nothing that really gives them that incentive to get us off of drugs because they don't make any, anything out of it. You know, they make money off of inside the, um, inside the system, off of the rehab facilities, off the detox facilities, all of these different things. The one thing that I could say that would help is to have better services, to have better services because I work with people. Yeah. But there's no law that you can put in because the drugs are going to get in. Yeah. Now that there's now that there's um now that there's fentanyl, fentanyl is the cheapest, deadliest, most addictive, painful, cheapest drug there is. It is like the super drug of everything, and they're putting it in everything. There's nothing to do. The only thing that we're going to be able to fight from a political stance is for there to put more money into. The programs that they have, because a lot of drug addicts have uh, social programs like Medicaid and Medicare, and they go into state facilities and the state facilities are crap. If I have somebody that goes and has private insurance or pays cash pay, I'll get you in a gorgeous facility and they'll give you really good, uh, good service. They'll give you a really good program. But if you have Medicaid or Medicare and I'm stuck to the state that you're in and I have to get you that they're like they're like prisons.
0: Yeah, listen. I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you brought it up because I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, there, it, at a time in a place where it feels like we need more services, more options, better options, it feels like there's less. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I'm, you know, I, I'm glad you brought it up, um, because that's something that I've suspected. Um, because I don't know, it seems rather obvious. Sadly enough and um, it just seems like something that we're not addressing. So we'll leave that alone for now because you and I are not going to solve the world's problems on that as bad as we'd like to. But what I would like to do, touch on real quick, I'm kind of circling back here. Tell us your faith story. So I I would love to hear more about um, how you got to a point where God was the center point point of your life?
1: I love this. I love this question. (laughs) So it started off, I was completely agnostic. I felt like there was a great cloud around my heads. Uh, When I I was in the hospital and I had that coma, I experienced that God is here. Uh, I was very stubborn on who he was and what he was about and how to develop that relationship. And Christianity was the last place that I was going to (laughs) look. The first place that I looked was the secret, was the law of attraction, was the universe. Mm -hmm. was all of these different things because it gave me some kind of connection into something that was outside of the world that I could see. It gave me some kind of um, notification that there's more than meets the eye out there, Whether whether you want to call them spirits or demons or gods or angels. I knew there was more to this world than what we can see in our physicality. And it was the first time that I experienced that. uh, And I started reading books. Like I started looking into Buddhism because Buddhism um, really, really kind of rung a bell because it's about uh, life through suffering, uh, duality, um, all about nature, Mm -hmm. uh, all of this. there's a little good and all evil There's a little evil and all good. uh, And it just kind of made sense to me logically. But right. as I started learning about it, it more it more resonated to me as a philosophy rather than a belief system. Um, so it wasn't really enough for me at that point. I started doing Buddhism for about six months or so. And then uh, I actually read... I read a little piece of the Torah, which is the five books uh, from the Bible. Uh, I got bored out of all my mind out of that because I didn't have any, <laughs> I didn't have any backstory or anything. You know, you don't you start in the New Testament when you when you read this kind of thing, uh, but I got kind of overwhelmed by the Torah. I was like, well, that's not the answer. Um, I like Genesis, but everything else was just like Leviticus and all this crazy stuff and the laws, and I was like, I don't know what's going on. So I I, I was like, that can't be the answer. So I circled back off of that. And then uh, I started to try to read the Quran, and the Quran. Uh, had a few interesting facts, but the things in it they were saying I didn't agree with. There was just there was just too much violence in it. And Muhammad was the Muhammad, Muhammad was a murderer. You know what I'm saying? Like he was <laughs> the the stories in that thing was just crazy. And then when he seen the 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 angel Gabriel and he wanted to jump off the it, it just it just got me crazy. I was like that's not God either. I was like well where am I going to go? So my friend introduced me to New Age spirituality. Uh, where And it had to do with meditation and prayer and moon ceremonies. And it's something that I could actually touch because it had to do with, with nature and with Mother Nature and all of these different things. Um, and I started with that for a little while. I really started doing Mother Nature. And I got introduced to a few different Native Americans. Native American South Americans I started praying with medicine men and shaman and uh, and chiefs from the uh from the indigenous people of North and South America uh I did and one of the things that really kind of got me turning towards Christianity is one time I did something called ayahuasca. I don't know if you're familiar with ayahuasca is but it's a it's a hallucinogenic root from from South America. Um and it has this stuff called DMT in it, which DMT is in all kinds of different, uh, every, every it's inside our mind. It's inside grass. It's inside plants. It's inside everything, but they extract it from the specific root in South America. And it's a hallucinogenic and supposed to get you to get to your consciousness. So it's supposed to strip away all of the different layers of your ego, of your consciousness. It's supposed to bring you back to who you truly are and connect you with the world. Now, let me tell you, I did this. And I freaked out. (laughs) I I went back to my old addictions, my old sexual addictions. I thought they were having an orgy in the corner. I mean, my my mind just went crazy. I just like I went a little nuts. Uh, But it really, really resonated to me about the spiritual realm. And I really got connected and aware of the spiritual realm. And I knew whatever spirits were in that were not the spirits that I wanted to be involved with because I knew there was spirits there. I I was very very well aware of it, but it scared me because they were the spirit. They weren't good spirits. Yeah. Right. Um, And they were scaring me to all high heaven. Uh, But I still thought I was on the right path with the universe and like all of this, uh, you know, you can, can, you could do anything. You can manifest anything. You can create anything. I was really, really into this. And then uh, one of my friends, we we went down like a rabbit hole of all kinds of crazy, uh, crazy, crazy thoughts and all this, and all this interesting stuff. And I'm not going to get into all that, but he told me to come to a Christian church one day. And, uh, and I kept telling him, no, nah, next time, next time I'll go and this next time. And one time I was like, ah, oh, you know what? I'm going to go there just to humor him. And I brought my mom and I went to this Christian church and I first got there and they were singing and they were singing. And I was like, I was sitting there and I look over my mom. My mom's crying. And you know, and I'm starting and I'm starting to sing to the songs, and I'm starting to feel like you know, I feel really, really good. And the sermon that day was the book of John. And it was the first time I ever heard the gospel in my whole entire life. And uh I don't know what went over me. The only thing I could say it was was God reaching out to me through his word. And I heard the gospel for the first time and I started hysterical crying, like sobbing, sobbing, crying in the middle, in the middle of the service. And I look at my mom, my mom's crying her eyes out and we're both sitting there like (laughs) crying, (laughs) dripping all over our face. And like, you know, and I never, never heard the Bible. And I went there to tell the, to tell the, uh, to tell the pastor why he was wrong and I was right. Mm. And by the time I left that service, I was in awe of the story of Jesus Christ and and what was it all about. And at the end of the service, the pastor said, okay, everybody bare their heads and, um, whoever's not saved here, raise your hand. And, uh, and they're like, if anybody here would like to be saved or would like to learn more about that, keep your hand up. And I kept my hand up and my mom kept our hand up. And we opened (laughs) our eyes. We looked at each other and we're like, Oh, (laughs) you know, and then I started talking to the pastor and I, and I asked him, and there was a few things that I just didn't get like the Holy, like the the Holy Trinity. I didn't get that. I didn't get it. I I was was like, this is ridiculous. What is this? This whole thing. And he (laughs) gave me an answer that just made sense. And then every answer that he gave me just all of a sudden made sense. It was like, the, I felt, oh, I know the Holy Spirit wasn't in it, but I felt like the Holy Spirit almost made everything make sense in that moment, because I could not, I couldn't understand why I understood everything this pastor said. It just made sense right there. And, and, and at that point, you know, I accepted Jesus into my life and, uh, and there was a lot, a lot of uh, ch- changes tearing of the flesh and the spirit uh the, you know this fruit the fruit of the flesh and the spirit uh were were a major major um renovation in my life from the music that i was listening to to the people i was hanging out with to the woman that i was dating to my to my sexual uh appetites to uh just the way that i spoke um it just i i felt the holy spirit in my body cleaning shop i mean yeah making moves and doing things in my life that never in a million years I thought I would do. And it was just a beautiful thing. And, you know, although there was a lot of pain and a lot of growing and stretching in that process, I wouldn't change it for the world. And I feel so blessed. And I, and I try to uh, share the gospel and share the good news with everybody that I can possibly Meet, although you know, I'm in a professional setting and sometimes it doesn't allow that all that yeah. much. And sometimes you work in a recovery and you can't tell people what to believe spiritually, but I hint to it or I use the practices of Jesus. And
0: well, yeah, and listen, I tend to believe that it, people see the light in you, yeah, you know, and and so, um, you know, it, what an incredible story. Uh, I love your I I I love your faith journey too. There's a story to your faith journey. It's, it's all good. So so tell us as we wrap up today Kevin again we'll we'll put this in the show notes. How can people get a hold of you? How can they find you, your book and all that stuff? Well, how how can we get a hold of you?
1: Excellent. Well, you you can you can get my book on Amazon. Uh it's called Winning Against All Odds. I'll put it for the people that do see this i know most people are probably listening but that's my book winning against all odds you can find it on amazon it's on it's in paperback it's in kindle and it's on audible for those who like to listen to books uh so i put it on all different all three different uh processes um uh, but you can reach me at kevin at true warrior dot com uh and and scheduling schedules a call uh, i'd love to jump on a zoom i love to connect with people uh i also have a website called Success.com and Kevin kevinparkerspeaks.com for obviously speak engagements but i'm all over facebook as you know kevin parker from staten island uh you can really kind of just google me i mean uh there I have, you go i have all i have all of my uh my social media is out there. I'm, 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 I'm out there. So, but if you want to reach me directly, uh, email me at Kevin at true success.com.
0: Awesome. Kevin, I absolutely enjoyed having you on the show, uh, and hearing y- your, your story. It's absolutely incredible. Um, would encourage everybody to, to, you know, check out your website, get the book. Um, Kevin really thanks a lot for being on the show and sharing your, your story.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: All right. Take care. Take care. So I hope you enjoyed today's interview with Kevin Parker. You know, it was inspiring to hear Kevin's story and how he pressed through to succeed. But what about you? Do you ever feel like life is hard? Like it could be difficult to get up in the morning and accomplish everything you have to do. Do you ever wake up tired and stressed all the time? Does life just seem too much? Sure, I get it. It's weighty. There's a lot of weighty things out there right now. This is a lot on your plate as a man, and it can be overwhelming at times. Now picture a real warrior, someone like Kevin Parker, who's come back from the lowest of lows to achieve good health, a quality of life that's envious and and purpose and direction. Now, when you see or hear someone who's made an incredible comeback in life, how does it make you feel? Do you see the possibility in that? Or just a great story for you with no real connection points. Does it feel like the comeback was met for Kevin and not for you? But no, hey, I get it. You're worn out. You had to go to work last night. Now you're back at it again today. Listen, there is no getting around the mindset of a true warrior and becoming one. One that knows how to fight and who he's fighting against. And how to win the battle. You know, the mind of a warrior is different. The point is to know what you want and go after it. It's about being tough and not getting upset over small things. It's about going forward with what you know is right and taking on responsibility and hardships with pride and dignity. It's about not letting your emotions get the best of you and not taking the easy answer or the easy way out of a problem. Is any of this easy? No. In fact, it's downright difficult. So what are you going to do about it? Like a lot of men I know, you're out there on this journey. Many of you by yourself and striving and climbing higher and life may be good on the surface layers, but there's a longing for more deep down inside. You may be questioning what that looks like. If you are, don't go it alone. Jump in and fight for the freedom and the more that you're looking for. Now reach out to me at Mike at com. Let's have an initial coaching call and talk about the challenges you face so we can put a plan together and move forward so you can achieve success like my buddy Kevin Kevin Parker. Listen, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast channel. Now go out and make this your best day ever. Improve your life today with Mike Van Pelt and True Man Life Coaching. Let's develop a roadmap of discovery that leads to success and satisfaction in your life. For additional information and details on how to schedule an initial coaching call, go to trumanlifecoaching.com.